You're listening to Dynamo's Dust. Now let's welcome your host, Team Dynamo Kelly. Welcome to Dynamo's Dozen, the podcast that I bring you each and every single week where I talk about whatever may be on my mind from pro wrestling, sports, entertainment, music, movies, muesli, fresh socks and jocks and everything in between, never forgetting the talk. And you are all very welcome back to another episode of Dynamo's Dozen with me, your host, Ian the Dynamo Kelly, and this week... I'm not going to bore you with any news stories from the world of professional wrestling or the world of entertainment or the world of anything. We're going to get straight in to a very special interview that I conducted with WWE slash WWF superstar of 94 all the way through to 97, Mr. Duke the Dumpster Drossy. So without further ado, here it is in full. Here we are once again on Dynamo's Dozen, and I'm very, very happy um, to to welcome Mike Duke the Dumpster Drossy to the show. Mike, for me, this is a big part of my childhood, and uh, I'm very, very happy to uh, to have you on the show. And thanks for taking your time to to actually join me. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate you having me on the show. Awesome. I'd say this is probably the only Irish interview you've ever done. First Irish. I've done a Scottish, a couple of uh, guys from England as well, but yeah, first Irish. You see, the Irish is a lot more clear, isn't it? The way we speak. (laughs) (laughs) You get a good Scotsman there, it can be difficult. (laughs) Brother. Yeah, it's thick. Oh, dude. So you're looking well, my friend. Um, you, you know, you've had a, it's been a kind of, you've had a, a lot of ups and downs over the course of what we're going to, you know, the course of the, you know, the, the career that you've had from start until you are where you are now. But I guess you're in a great place now. But let's kind of go back to, um, I suppose, the beginning. Um, if my research is correct, you, you, you debuted back in 1990 around the Miami, Miami, Florida earlier area, should I say? Yeah, I think it was somewhere late eighties, but yeah, maybe okay. maybe nineteen ninety. But um, I debuted. I want to say, golly, I'm pretty sure my first match was with the AWA uh, when the Savoldis took it over. Oh, AWA okay. ICW in the Davie Rodeo Arena in Davie, Florida. Okay. Um, and that that was my very first match. And I'll never forget it. I wrestled a local guy that was friends with the guy that trained me, who had brought me. But um, I never forget. We were talking over our match out behind the dressing rooms, like they were getting, we were getting dressed behind, like they were some. I guess where the uh, cowboys that ride the rodeo get dressed. And sure, <laughs> there was a bunch of fans out back around the fence, kind of looking at us, and I didn't even realize it. I mean, it was my first match, you know, and yeah, I'm yeah. talking. Over with my opponent and Nick Bockwinkle comes oh. out and just tore me a new one. He's like, do you realize 
there's wrestling fans standing right over there watching everything you guys are talking about. You might want to come in the locker room and go over your match. I just felt like an idiot. You know, the great Nick Bogwinkle, my very sure. first match, trying to make a great first impression. And he just waylaid on me and made me feel like a fool. Which, you know, you learn tough lessons when you're a greenhorn, man. You got you, you to get it together, man. Sink or swim. So I learned a tough lesson that day. Yeah, and I mean, it's in a period, like, it's a different stage now where, you know, you've got guys now on big promotions coming at, well, I guess, uh, on the way to being big promotions, um, you know, coming out and talking how they're gimmicking chairs and gimmicking this and gimmicking that, you know, a billionaire talking about gimmicking a chair and you're going, holy shit, man, um, different times. Um, yeah. Different times, but better times, I'm sure you would agree, too. Man, I will tell you the, you know, I, I love sitting back and reading the comments on social media of all the people arguing back and forth about <laughs> AEW and WWE and NXT. But the reality of the situation is the new company and the new companies that are prospering create more situations for other people up and down the line and from the guys in the big leagues, like you said, all the way down to the people working the independents locally, there's more opportunities, there's more shows, there's more places to work, and that makes everybody happy because everybody can make more money. Oh, for sure. But what I meant as in better times, as in for a, for a wrestling fan, it was in a time where um, you only had dirt sheets and it, not every 11, 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid, you know, had the I suppose the articulacy of being able to understand what these dirt sheets were um, or what they actually meant or even where to find them in a lot of ways especially in Europe and stuff like that the Wrestling Observer wouldn't have been a huge deal in Europe as it would have been say over in the States back in the you know 80s to, to 90s I just think what I mean is better times in the sense that you enjoyed the product and appreciated it for what it was you enjoyed the business and the art of it for what it was Instead of nowadays, social media is kind of ruining it. Just like you said, comments back and forth of, let's be fair, a lot of guys and girls who don't know the first thing about even tying a boot, let alone, you know, taking a bump. But the, everyone's an expert now, and that's I think that's probably the problem with social media. But I do agree, a lot more places to work, and that's a good thing. Yeah, and I think a lot of it has come about from, and I'm not, not a... a I'm not for or against Dave Meltzer in any way, shape, or form. I don't, you know, he's doing what he does, and he makes money and good for him. Yeah. But I think, like you said, it was a situation where it was literally dirt sheets on paper that they would mail to people. I remember in the yeah. 90s because I remember like Road Dog coming up to me one day and telling me that I was about to have a tryout as an announcer with Vince McMahon one time, which was about to happen, but I was keeping it under wraps. Well, Dave Meltzer knew about it. So the thing about Meltzer, though, is I think a large group of or groups of fans over the years have followed him and his the kayfabe sheets, uh, and he has always – had an inside track on what was going on in the business. And that has somehow over the years translated and turned into or morphed into a situation where he has supposedly become an expert yeah. on wrestling in general and what sure. is good in wrestling and what is not in good is wrestling. And these people that have followed him all these years with him getting all this inside information now think he is the Guru. end all 
Yeah. No guru mm-hmm. in professional wrestling, and that's just not the case. He's no. just another guy with another opinion like everybody else, uh, and people take what he says as the gospel in professional wrestling. And, um, you know, if if you don't know any better, <laughs> you know, people put so much credence into what he talks about, you know, his six-star, seven-star matches or however oh. many stars up to now. It's great, man. It's I- so- I hate the star system. I'm just gonna put yeah. it out. I'm just gonna put it out there and say I'm a Bill Apter guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I like Bill yes, Apter. Absolutely. Yeah. I-, I followed those magazines when I was growing up, man. Yeah. All the Apter magazines, no Wrestling Illustrated, obviously, of course. Um, but yeah, I was also a Bill Apter guy. Yeah, I'm a Bill Apter and guy. I still see him at the conventions, by the way. I'm oh sure yeah, yeah. Fun. He's gonna be. Uh, yeah, he's agreed to come on the show in January sometime as well. So I'm really looking forward to that. There's actually a great UK-based uh, friend of the show, friend of mine, UK-based um, editor. A lot of people would have said he was the Dave Meltzer of uh, of the UK. I give him a little bit more credibility than that. He doesn't tend to, you know, rate matches in the way he does. But it's uh, Finn Martin, Finley Martin, used to run the Power Slam okay. magazine over in the, the UK. Oh. Power Slam, yeah, really, really big magazine over here. That was kind of our equivalent, I guess, of the Observer, but uh, not as much um, dirt on the guys. You know what I mean? Um, but really good. But let's let's move on. I guess it's good to kind of talk about that because you're right. It is very relevant. Um, that Uncle Dave is. I don't know whether he's just uh, putting stuff out now, just just because he knows it pisses people off. Maybe he is, but he's making money from it anyway. And and uh, I guess you know makes him money. And he can't hurt the wrestling business any more than than I guess it it it, it is at the moment. So. Keep doing what right. you're doing, Davey. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so you make your debut, yeah. Um, you, you wrestled throughout Florida, I guess. You're a Florida guy, right? Um, yep. Wrestled through Florida throughout the 90s. I guess when you were kind of in the, I guess it would have been regional back then, but the territories were kind of dying down, I guess, at this stage. Um, I guess Crockett and WWE had pretty much bought out most of the, the major territories, but some of the the territories were still under the NWA guys or under the A AWA guys. Would that be correct? Yeah, uh, the AWA had just kind of come down there, kind of as a fluke. They really didn't run Florida very often. But like sure. I said, the Savoldis, uh, Angelo Savoldi, okay. had taken it over, and they just kind of came down and did some TV in Florida that time. But yeah. NWA, they had for a long time. They had championship wrestling from Florida. Sure. They held on for quite a while. I think it was. I think they were still doing TV tapings in that small Tampa sport auditorium up until maybe almost 1990. Were the Grahams um, still doing it? The show. Yeah, huh? the Grahams were still kind of around at that that point. Were they? They were still doing anything up in I Florida. Think, I think. Yeah, I don't know if my Graham was still there. I remember I went in. It was probably. I want to say it was 80s. I don't know what year it was. I went up with a buddy of mine and we did TV and I, we did a job match, a, a six man tag. It was me and my buddy, Jimmy Young and this guy, Sam Bass. We wrestled Scott Hall, Ron Simmons and Brady Boone. Oh, good and it Lord. was in the, in the team of sportatorium. It's the only match I ever did. Uh, and I don't even think they were still calling it championship wrestling from Florida, sure. but it was still that same small set that Gordon Soley had been on. They still had Sir Oliver Humperdinck. The barbarian was there. Lex Luger, Rick Flair, Barry Windham, all these guys were there. Uh, but I think it was the last real Florida regional promotion to kind of hold on before they just, you know, packed up and moved everything to Atlanta. Sure. But there was still 
you know, anybody who had a ring said they had a school ran the occasional show down in Florida. So, and I worked with some guys that, that ran kind of uh, uh, on a regular basis. So, you know, I got some shows in kind of part-time on the side while I was also going to college at yes. the University of Miami. So it was it worked out pretty good for me. Yeah, I mean, you were you were definitely kind of the epitome of, um, I guess, when you started out, um, a guy who, who definitely had a plan B as well. Um, you didn't just jump, I guess, head first. Would I be, would I be right in saying that? Yeah, and I, I, you know, I tried to make sure I, I finished college before I pursued wrestling and, sure. it, and that's kind of how it's funny because i graduated from the university of miami in i think it was may of 1993 and literally within that month i was walking up to vince mcmahon at a convention in, in miami beach and getting my push or getting my opportunity and they brought me up for a tryout so it all just kind of fell into place because before that i was planning on just getting in my old Cadillac and driving across the country and trying to work for the last few remaining, you know, territories, like sure. going to Memphis, even driving up to New York and, you know, doing all those things. But it ended up, I didn't have to do that because Vince and the WWF came down to Miami beach for a Natfi convention, which is where I went up and talked to Vince. So awesome. And I'm convinced, and we're going to throw this little, little nugget out there and see if, um, See if anybody kind of sees what I'm doing here. I am convinced that you are the inspiration behind Danny DeVito's character in Always Sunny in Philadelphia because he came out with the trash can, as you remember. And uh, I saw that. I threw, saw that. Yeah, he threw yeah. garbage. <laughs> I was just waiting to say it's time to take out the trash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But your first, uh, your first, I guess, tussle with 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 garbage was. Uh, you you wrestled under the moniker the the garbage man in '93, just shortly before you actually signed with the WWE. Was that around the time you were in uh, in talks or? Well, I started wrestling as the garbage. I started the garbage man gimmick. It was probably in 1992 because it was right after Hurricane Andrew had hit South Florida. Because okay. we started doing free shows down in Homestead, Florida. They had like a. a Tons of people had lost their homes. So oh, okay. people were living in tents that the army were putting up. And we were just going down there on weekends and doing free shows for these people. Sure. And that is where I started the Garbage Man, Rocco Gibraltar gimmick. Uh, and I wrestled as the Garbage Man until I got my break. Um, you know, it was towards the end of 93. And then they signed me in 94. So. Awesome, and and that's kind of where where I guess the the story begins, um, in terms of how people would remember you. Obviously, it wasn't it was the break you were looking for. Um, now some of the things I guess that we can speak about because you've written some great pieces on um, you know, on even on your social media, just giving a little bit of an insight into um the likes of pay scales during this time and stuff. We'll get onto that I guess in a little while. Um, just to kind of help people understand how it actually worked, because this would have been a time now where I'm say ten years old, so I'm heavily invested in wrestling at this time. To me, I don't look at it as a uh, as a down period in wrestling. I just look at it as a great period. You know what I mean? Uh, because yeah. depending on your age and, and and you know demographic, whatever it is, it's a great time regardless. Um, I was a Bret the Hitman Hart guy after Hulk Hogan, so 
you know, it was a great time for, for, for wrestling as well in terms of the actual in-ring stuff. It was definitely a great time, even if the house wasn't so good. Um, so you came into the WWE in 1994. Uh, how is that? How, how are you? And actually, funny enough, this is the period as well where it's the gimmick of professions in the sense that they're bringing gimmicks in. Uh, we've got the goon who's a hockey player. We've got a uh, man mountain rock who's just a guitar player. We've got the IRS who's a you know tax man. Um, so it's yeah, it's. Did you kind of recognize that before I went up? That's why that yeah. was one of the reasons I developed that garbage man gimmick because they were doing it yeah. back in ninety three ninety two. So that's pretty cool. That's what I was gonna say. So you were pretty smart actually to that that you said right. I can get spotted here if I if I do something that they're looking at doing at the moment. So you kind of put yourself in the shop window a little bit, I guess. Yeah, and it came down to I, I had already had the name Rocco Gibraltar, and which is a really cool was, name, by the way. Yeah, this uh, one of my fraternity brothers in college gave it to me. <laughs> yeah, it's a really cool name. I was yeah. trying to figure out what kind of job to go because I wanted to be the G, G- man, Rocco Gibraltar, and okay. G man could be in a they call them FBI guys, G men here in the states, and it was either a, an FBI agent. Or G Man as in Garbage Man, and I went with Garbage Man. So, and it, you know, it definitely worked. It definitely worked. Um, still, some I still don't care what anyone says. It's still some of my favorite wrestling entrance music. <laughs> I think it's awesome. <laughs> I hated it when they first gave it to me. I was like, oh, this is terrible. But yeah, it kind of grew on me. Um, yeah, it was okay. The, they kind of stole it from my promo tape. I actually, that's how I started my promo tape with the beeping noise of the backing of the garbage truck backing up. Uh, okay. And they kind of implemented that into the entrance music. But yeah, it was, I didn't like it at first, but uh, it, it grew on it me. It grew on you. Actually, what does a promo tape look like back in 1993, 94, when you're sending your promo tape in WWE? What, like, what are you, what is, how long, what's, what's the content? It was a VHS tape. And me and my brother took, I, I taped every match I did as the garbage man. And I basically went through meticulously and pulled out little highlights uh, because I had a, a highlight. First, I had a, a interview on the beginning. I cut a promo. Um, it was basically about a minute and a half, maybe long. Then I did a highlight reel with a music it was like a music video highlight reveal. Um, man, I want to say that probably lasted, I'm not sure, probably five minutes, maybe, or maybe a little less. And then on the very end, I stuck an entire match so they could see how I worked an actual match. Sure. Uh, and like I said, it was on a VHS tape and I made, man, I went and had that thing copied like 50 times and I only ended up handing out two of them. One, <laughs> To George the Animal Steel oh. at a show in Miami, and then like literally a week or two later, Vince McMahon was at this convention, and I would walked up, and I had a resume with my school and everything I had done and work and, and wrestling and, and included, and uh, uh, and I just walked up to Vince and started talking to him and handed it to him, and they called me a week later. But yeah, that's kind of how it went down. It wasn't. You know, it was it was very limited. There was there was no computer programs for editing back then, really. Sure. And, you know, and I I basically used two VCRs and I went through piece by piece and used that little rolling counter on the sure. VCR. Yeah. yeah. 
I plotted each and every highlight that I wanted and I logged it on about three pages worth of highlights and I picked out everything I wanted and put it together and went through and just put a tape in, fast forwarded it and then taped on to a second VCR. I had another tape. I taped that highlight on, pulled it out, got the next tape and I put it together and it all just came together really well. It was shocking, actually. And I've got a copy of that on my Facebook page, actually, somewhere, if you look for it. I'm going to look for that straight up. straight have a couple this. times. So, yeah, it's it's on there. You'll see it. There you go. I mean, that's all you YouTubers out there now that have it so easy and you can just click a button. That is how you made promo tapes back <laughs> in the early 90s. I love it. Yeah, there was no internet yet. There was none of that. Thank no God! Thank God for that. Um, <laughs> take me back. Yeah. Thank uh, take, God for that. Take me back. Um, so I mean, when you get into the WWE, your first meetings with Vince and stuff like that—is it kind of as intimidating as people make out, or or are you even kind of, um, I guess, smartened up as to how you know you 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 act? I guess in the WWE locker room back then, had you been in the business? I guess long enough and been around the right um, veterans to kind of guide you to that? Or are you, are you kind of just calling it on the fly? Or and A lot of it I was just calling on the fly. I mean, I had some friends. <clears throat> uh, I was talking about this friend I had worked with before. Um, Jimmy Young, he wrestled in the WWF. He was an enhancement. Him and Joe Murto were a tag team in the late 80s. Uh, enhancement wrestlers. He wrestled as... Uh, Mighty Jim Young, I think. Okay. And he had a lot of good... See, back in those days, some of the enhancement guys were actually full-time, and they would travel. Sure, yeah. You know, and he smartened me up quite a bit, um, because other than that, I would have had no clue, because I really... I didn't work my way up through any of the major territories. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I just kind of watched my P's and Q's and kept my mouth shut, and and uh, tried to do my job the best I could and uh, not get on anybody's nerves, at least not until later. But, yeah, I mean, I just did – I went there to wrestle, and that's what I did, and I had a blast. So, like, this is the era of the, the infamous click um, in full effect. Um, well, Kevin Ash, Gahal, H, Shawn Michaels, whoever. Um, so you would have seen a lot of the click and blah, blah, blah. Is there anybody you kind of felt yourself, um, I guess, going to for advice or um, trying not to? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure with the click and the um, and the amount of workers that and guys that were around back then, you kind of didn't really kind of get into the click unless they wanted you to. Um, did you ever have any problems with them, or did you ever find yourself kind of? You know, was there anybody that you kind of, as in, like maybe top of the food chain in the locker room, other than them that you went to for, you know, I guess, guidance or anything like that? Well, as far as like, I, I never really had any problem with them. I mean, sure. you just there wasn't a lot of trust. You were, you were, people were very careful. There, there was to a certain extent some paranoia as far as yeah. politics, business in the back, hearsay um, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, other than that, as far as those click guys, a lot of times I would go out with them and we'd go partying and stuff, yeah. which, you know, away from the wrestling business yeah. itself. Um, but I never had any problem with those guys. Um, some people did. Some people were very bitter and pissed off and thinking they were ruining their careers or whatever. But it wasn't you know, always necessarily the case either. It was easy to blame the click because somebody else did, sure. It, 
you're not getting, you're not holding up your end of the bargain, and exactly. you know you're push because you're not necessarily good enough. Um, yeah, there's yeah. A things, there's a lot of things I would have done differently, knowing what I know now, if I do it back then. But it is what it is. Um, now, as far as advice, uh, a lot of times I was talking, I was asking Bret Hart for advice. Um, I think sometimes he was winding me up, though. Uh, <laughs> Steve Austin, I would talk to him a lot about stuff. Um, and he would tend to be the one that always gave me good advice. Yeah. But I didn't listen to his advice. I would always listen to Brett's. You see, so. you got to remember, Brett was good friends with that Calgary crew and the British Bulldogs. So the British Bulldogs, I think, brought banter into uh, <laughs> into the, the Calgary world. So. <laughs> yeah, they were. I, I used to sit in the, you know, I would ride with those guys. It would be Brett, Owen, and Davey, and myself. And I would sometimes listen to those guys talk about how they were winding somebody up, like Lex Luger or somebody else. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and later on, I'd start thinking, I wonder if they're trying to wind me up. And, you know, look back, you know, hindsight being 2020. But yeah, they, they were an interesting crew. That's to say the least. But good fun, I bet as well. I mean, the the, the um, it's it's You're actually in a vehicle with Davy Boy and Owen. You were always gonna have fun. Yeah, because you would have missed. I mean, on this show, actually, it's always kind of we always kind of mention Dynamite Kid. You know, he's good friends. His brother and his family are very good friends of of mine on the show. So we always, you know, try and kind of speak very highly of Dynamite because in a world where a lot of people that don't know shit speak very negatively on him. Um, yeah. Just by what they hear exactly. through the shit sheets or wherever they hear it, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. It's been repeated so many times it becomes fact. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I never met Dynamite. Uh he was a great wrestler. Oh yeah. Um I heard he was a bully, but you know there was a lot of guys that were bullies in different kinds of ways. Sure, you know, uh, sure. people people would wind each other up and if you didn't have a strong disposition, you would fall victim to it. So, you know, that's just part of the way it was even when i was there but no i never had the opportunity i wish i could have met dynamite um i just i always uh i always respected his work yeah you know i was a i was a fan yeah. of the british bulldogs in their heyday when they were in the wwf head of their so, time yeah. man yeah head of their time for sure time. yeah time. look at look at their stuff today it still holds up um have you got actually funny enough there we gotta ask this just because you mentioned him have you got any good um, any good own ribs that you can think of on the on the fly? <laughs> I mean, I always tell the one about he got me when I first started. He did the old hotel room. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> a.m. in the morning, and he calls my hotel room, acting like he was a Domino's pizza delivery guy, <laughs> and or the pizza people at the pizza place trying to sell me some great deal they had on pizza, and I just got so pissed off. I didn't even know, you know I didn't even know it was him, and. Uh, he tape recorded the whole thing. He carried one, of, you know, one of those old school vid, uh, telephone uh, voicemail recorders that had the little cassette tapes in them. Is that like, like the, the gimmick, uh, like the gimmick in Home Alone? Yeah, the, the, the original movie. ones. Yeah, he brought one on the road just to tape record him ribbing people on the phone in the hotel. Yeah. So yeah, that was my first uh, taste of Owen Hart ribs, and you would just sit back and watch him rib people he would do th things like chain somebody's bag up into a, a up to a metal pole and they would have to call somebody that worked at the building to try and find bolt cutters and they'd be stuck there half the night because they couldn't get their bag unhooked from the damn you know pipeline so uh -huh. yeah I, I saw many owen ribs and uh i mean they were always 
funny ribs, you know, harmless, not serious. It's quite innocent, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when you're when you're in in 1994 um what's what's duke the dumpster Josie's path looking like at this stage what have they what have they got for you um 1994 i guess um like you say they threw me right in with jerry the king lawler yeah yeah yeah. like it was huge um in a lot of ways i was clueless uh you know i in a lot of ways i didn't know how to handle it and i think that that may have caused me to not get as much mileage out of it as I could have. Like we didn't even get a pay-per-view out of that. Sure. Um, and I felt like we should have, cause we opened it up pretty hot with him attacking me on live Monday night raw, beating me with my own garbage can. I remember and that. that. Yeah. Like when you, big, yeah. Big deal. Yeah. And, um, you know, the office didn't even want us to do that. We just kind of did it on the down low without asking. Mm-hmm. And, um, that might've been part of the reason, and two, why people kind of hit the brakes on that whole thing. Um, but we worked our way forward with it, and it seemed like it was getting some good traction. And then, I guess, on the next pay-per-view, whatever it was, I think he wrestled, Jerry Lawler wrestled uh, Roddy Piper. They yeah, brought back sure. Piper for a match. And I was like, why am I not wrestling him? I just did, like, this three months of build-up. Yeah, that was like Survivor and, um, Series. Yeah, I remember that. And, like, the the run-in was pretty much building up to, to you. and Because uh, I think it was, like, a superstars. One week, you had thrown the trash on him. And then the following week, he kept cutting you off when you were when you were trying to speak back to him. And you just got fed up and said, oh, I'm out of here. Yeah, and he attacks you. Yeah, yeah I remember. That was my first deal. That was, a, that was my very first... That deal where I mean, and that was live TV too. Yeah, I just we yeah. just walked up there and did that deal, and you know, he and I talked beforehand. He asked if he could hit me with the can. I said, "Yeah, go ahead." You know, we kind of asked Jack Lanza, who was the agent. He was just like, "Go ahead and do it." It's live. <laughs> go ahead. We did it, and when we came back, you could tell people in the back were kind of pissed off. Okay, and they actually made. Gorilla Monsoon and uh, Randy Savage come on. They were doing the commentary, and they came on and apologized for the violence. That's when I knew something was wrong. And then they did this thing the next week on Superstars where they taped Jerry the King Lawler apologize. They were making him apologize, which I was like, this is killing all the heat on the whole deal. So I don't know. You know, some people would be paranoid and say, oh, you know, people were out to get you, and they 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 threw a bucket of ice water on it just to kill your angle because they didn't want you getting over more than them. But I don't know if that's necessarily the truth. I know Pat Patterson didn't really like me too much, and I didn't like him either. <laughs> um, and I, I heard some of the things he said when I was out in the ring doing some of that stuff with Lawler. Um, but again, man, if you're if you're worth anything in this business, you got to know how to get over. There's always ways to get over, especially when there's live TV. So, um, in a lot of ways, I was clueless back then. So, you know, I it mean, is what it is. It is kind of true. I mean, because you always hear, I mean, you always hear Steve Austin saying sometimes you got to just go out on a limb and say, fuck what the office says and try something and hope that it just sticks. You know, you throw enough shit on the wall, something's going to stick. Um, ask, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. Yeah, exa- exactly. So yeah, it, it could have been. It could have been. But look, that's that's what may may not have been. And you know, it's a long time ago. But it was a really, really cool angle, and I remember that you know very very vividly. Um, 
He kind of I went. Think to... he ended up having a blow off on another Monday Night Raw where I wrestled him, and I got to beat him only by count out. I, of course, I wasn't going to pin him. Mm. I beat him by count out because Doink and Dink, the clowns, got involved, which set up their angle. Which I think that was the next one that was the Survivor Series where they had the four midget kings and the four midget yes, dinks. Yes, yeah, I remember that. Each other in that big match, but that's how it kind of ended on a Monday Night Raw where they set up the match with the clowns. So I like how you said big match as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we've got the Irish banter as well. It's very similar to the UK. The old winding up thing is very very big over here. You come to an Irish bar. In uh, in Dublin, I would dare say it's very like a uh, wrestling locker room. <laughs> if your if your skin is not leather, forget about it. Forget about it. <laughs> I hear you. Um. So, you know, you had your run from ninety four uh, all the way through to ninety six. One of the things um that really kind of stood out to me because we know Conrad Thompson um has his big shows with the likes of Bruce Pritchard and they talk about a lot of stuff and you always hear Conrad Thompson. Uh, talking about figures and stuff like that and money because he's a money guy, um, mortgage guy. So, of course, he's interested in that kind of thing. I remember a, a few months back, um, you kind of gave a little bit of a breakdown um, on the kind of pay scale and how it worked um, for guys, say, in your position back in, like, 94, 95. Um, if you don't mind, just kind of give me give us a little bit of a, a breakdown of the way it worked back then because even at that stage, people... It looked a lot more glamorous, I guess, than it was. Yeah, in 94, I don't remember exactly what month I started in officially, but it was probably, I probably signed like in April or something. So April through the end of the year in 94, I made $24,000. Um, you know, uh, the second year, 95, I made 54000 and then the last year, which was only a partial year in '96, with the whole Triple H thing and all that, I made about sixty-five. Now, to keep in mind, these are the figures. That's that's what I made before road expenses and before paying taxes. Sure, and stuff exactly. Um, so it was a whole lot less. But the thing about it was, is it wasn't the same for everybody. You know, Vince paid different people different money, and one of the things I was not smartened up in coming into the business, especially in WWF, was how to get paid, how to uh, make a deal with the office. And so I had no clue yeah. about any of that stuff. Sure, sure. Um, so I think Vince took well took advantage of that fact. He knew I was just happy to be there. Yeah. So I probably got paid less than most people. Yeah. Um, other guys that had a longer track record in different territories and stuff, I'm sure came in making more money than that. But pretty much everybody coming in got the same contract. It was the guarantee was 10 matches a year at 150 a match, which obviously you were going to make more than that. But that gave the office the ability to make you more money or to starve your ass. Yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's kind of how it worked. Um, and there was times, you know, I've talked about this, where there was a $200 cash draw at the sh 
at house shows available. Like if you needed some cash for road expenses, you could get a $200 draw at each show. Um, and there was times where houses were down, <clears throat> houses were down so bad that you could look out the curtain and see how few people were there. And you knew if you didn't take your $200 cash, you were going to make less than that on a check. Oh, shit. So because you knew they didn't have the balls to send you a negative invoice. So you were going to get your 200 bucks, And that happened on, on many occasions, man. I looked oh, wow. out the curtain and said, I'm getting my 200 bucks because I know I'll make less if I wait for the check. Of course. Yeah, because so if you're dependent on the... Less than 200 in a WWF paycheck. That's, yeah. I mean, that's the one thing that stood out to me. You were saying that, like, sometimes... You know, you you there was periods where you could get like five hundred, say five hundred dollars, over a two week period. Yeah, you know, which is which is crazy, man. Like, people working in a convenience store were you know were making more money than that. And then on top of that, you guys had to pay for your own expenses, hotels, and um, you know, flights. You got to pay for your own flights too. They paid for the flights. You're, they paid for flights. Paid for everything else. So it was car rental and. So. So, food, any of that stuff, paying for gyms if you had to pay at the gym or going tanning or whatever else you did, you paid for all that, you kept your receipts, and you you, know, you wrote it off on your taxes, but still, you know, you were 1099 there, so... So you really got to try and find a good guy that you can ride with, like, and I guess um, for a lot of your... People, yes, and share rooms, yes. But for you, you got, to, you got to ride with Brett quite a bit, so... Um, yeah, that was a little bit later on, but yeah, I rode with Brett uh, early on. I rode with guys like you know the Smoking Guns. I rode with Bob Holly and Adam Bomb and Savio, and you know it just depends on who you hooked up with before tour. But yeah, later on, I was riding with Brett quite a bit, and I was riding with Steve Austin quite a bit uh, as well. But yeah, we would always try to kind of save costs. money. Yeah. Even guys like Brett Hart, who you knew were making money, he would still try to save money. He didn't waste money, so. Smart, I guess, but um, but at the same time, yeah, it shows the lower end of the of the totem pole in nineteen, you know, ninety four, ninety five, and then, obviously, you know, I guess it's it's Ted Turner. Um, if Ted Turner hadn't come along, I guess there still wouldn't be guaranteed contracts, really. You know what I mean? Good chance there wouldn't be. You're probably right about that. Very good chance. Yeah, I mean, it was around that period as well when when Nash and Hall go there with Hogan and start getting guaranteed contracts. So, when 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 this actually uh, this is actually quite interesting. I just thought of this while I was while I was mentioning that this is around the time ninety five ninety six where you're seeing guys maybe going off to um to WCW. Um, did that ever cross your mind? Was that like what? What's the noise in the back? Are people talking about maybe trying to go over and get some of that guaranteed money, especially maybe some of the some of the guys that like yourself that were getting a little bit of TV time, but not necessarily getting any kind of a a not getting a bit of a rub of the green, both literally and you know character wise. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I tried to I tried to go to WCW after I left WWF. You know, I had to finish out. I think like six months. I sat home on the contract because I didn't just I just didn't want to make a big deal about it. But then when I was free and clear, uh, I went and talked to WCW, and they they gave me a tryout match, but I don't think they were interested. I, you know, uh, during that time, I think they were spending a lot of money already. Uh, you know, it started pretty much I think with Lex Luger, and then you know Hall and Nash were the big ones. Um, 
And to be fair, um, like Lex Luger, you were better than him. He <laughs> was wrestling in the ring, but he had that million dollar body. Yeah, man. no, and, I and know. He, I know. He was Lex is an interesting guy, man. I, I tell you, people, I've heard shoot interviews and stuff where people kind of blast him for being a cocky individual and and all that. I think he was very misunderstood. Actually, he was a highly intelligent person. First of all, good I business sat on, man. I yeah. On many bus rides in, in Europe. Uh, on Europe tours, just sitting there talking to him and having interesting conversations. But uh, he was kind of quiet and kept to himself, and he, he kind of came across cocky. But, you know, uh, if you look like that, that though, uh, Scott Hall used to say, all show and no go. You know, he, maybe his ring abilities weren't the greatest, but he made a lot of money in this business. So, yeah. you know, he did something. And he's definitely, uh, I gotta say, looking at some, um, looking at some recent interviews with with Lex, he's obviously, you know, he's found his kind of peace with himself, and and definitely kind of had a had a hard time, and and definitely, uh, you know, definitely. I shot on, um, I didn't shoot on him, but we were uh, we done a we done a funny podcast there last week where we uh, we tried a uh, a watch along pay per view on the podcast, the way Conrad Thompson and all does it, but we decided being Irish as well, we would do it while we were drunk. <laughs> and uh, so it was actually a lot of fun, man. A lot of fun. Um, I tried. I tried the color, and it was it was pretty funny. <laughs> um, but one of the things that came up, Virgil was a big part of this uh, nineteen ninety one Survivor Series pay per view. I love Virgil. I gotta man. ask you, dude. Yeah, because I kept I kept saying, "Oh, there's Virgil, the homeless dude," and I'm obviously joking, you know, Virgil, the homeless dude. It's a it's a running joke now at this stage. Um, he's now Soul Train Jones in uh, AEW. That's some of the stuff that you put up with Virgil is really, really funny. How did that? How did that come about? <laughs> just, it, just getting the opportunity to see him at conventions and stuff, and sit there and listen to the stories he tells. I was like, oh my god, I had, I had to start sharing some of that stuff. And you know, because he funny. he he booked WrestleMania one, right? He booked it all. Of course. Yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> He wrote it all up, actually. He called all the finishes. Yeah, he was working the gorilla position, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very famous story. <laughs> but yeah, Virgil, man, he tells some doozies, man, some of the stories. And he gets a kind of raw deal, people calling him Lonely Virgil. Man, at any convention, at any point in time, every damn wrestler is a lonely whoever. There's Lonely Duke all the time sitting there when the fans kind of dry up for a little while and they're going to other people's tables. Everybody has that happen where there's not a lot of business coming your way for, sure. for a little while. Of course. It's just so happy that people. So I started going out of my way to take pictures of myself when there was nobody at my table. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and then I made sure to also go over and get a picture. I just put that picture up actually with, with Virgil at the uh, last WrestleCon. I love Virgil, man. I love his stories. Um, he, like I said, he tells some doozies, man. Um, I told the story about how we were doing a show in a convention in uh, Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And it was me. It was uh, Tiger Jackson, Dink the Clown. It was uh, Hornswoggle and and, and uh, Virgil jumped in the van with us to go to the airport. And this was, man, it was like four or five in the morning, man. We got out early and... Uh, Virgil told this story about how Vince McMahon discovered him when he was wrestling in the finals of the NCAA wrestling tournament where he won the national championship and he pinned his opponent 
uh, like in the first minute of the first round and Vince signed him on the spot. And that story, I just sat there going, oh, my God, this guy's insane. Uh, <laughs> that's our cheek stuff, though, right there, yeah. Yeah, and I love the fact that he's getting the opportunity with AEW. I mean, that's good. Good on him, man. Well, I've got to go back to him now because he. Uh, there's only been two guys – that have ever asked me for an astronomical sum of money to come on this show. And I'm like, dude, this is an independent podcast. I'm trying to, you know, help people as much as I'm helping myself, too. It's just, it's a chat. I think Virgil was like, Virgil said something like, how much you got, kid, or something like that. And I was like, well, look, it's an independent podcast. It's not really a paying gig. And he was like, nah, I don't think I can do it. (laughs) I was like, okay. I mean, he was nice about it, but it's actually a little joke that I put up now. So now it may be that he's got a little bit of the bubbly and he's got a... He's got, now the prices are going to go up even worse. Well, I was thinking he might do me a favor now that he's... Uh, <laughs> that he can, yeah. No. <laughs> no, that ain't, that ain't going to happen. And Sabu was the other guy. He he. But, I mean, Sabu was straight up. So I've talked to Sabu quite a bit, actually, you know, on text and on, on Messenger, just asking him, you know, certain things, advice over the years. But as soon as I asked him to come on the podcast, he was like, 500 bucks, kid. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but at least he got his price. You know, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. If, if you get it, you get it. If Harley Race and uh, Jeff Jarrett aren't asking me for money to come on the show, then I'm not paying Virgil. That's all I'll say. I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah. I would agree with that. You know, and uh, so I appreciate you. You can tell Virgil you got a bigger sum from from uh, from me then. I would. Tell him I got two grand. Uh, two grand. Two thousand euros. <laughs> two thousand euros. Yeah. Um, so, he'll, I mean. He'll call you and hit you up. And yeah, say he's ready to do it. I'll give you a better price. You give me a discount. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, One thousand nine hundred. <laughs> um, so, when you. Train leave, Jones. That was his old gimmick in Memphis, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was. Old Train Jones. That's why they're using it because Vince doesn't own that. Yeah, well, fair, hilarious. fair play to him, dude. Um, so when you when you leave WWE, obviously one of the one of the things now, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of time as well. You're you're a busy guy. Um, when you leave WWE, one of the big things, obviously, we don't have to go step by step what you do, but one of the big things you do is you 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 get an education as a school teacher. Um, is that like right away or is that, are no. you st- no, no, okay. That was way, way, way down the road, man. When I first left the WWF, WWE, um, actually it was funny because I was at a TV. I, I, I want to say it was in, uh, in Vancouver mm-hmm. in, in Canada and Jerry Briscoe walked up to me and just said, Vince said you can go ahead on home. And I was just stunned. Um, and then I just remember me and Stone Cold Steve Austin after the show, after the TV taping, we went back to the hotel and uh, my hair was already short, but I had clippers with me and, uh, we shaved my head all the way down and got drunk. (laughs) And then, uh, I just laid out by the pool for two days until my plane, I didn't even change my plane ticket. I just stayed there at the hotel, but then I went home and I just kind of fucking, went down the, the damn drain uh, as far as drugs and everything. So sure. it got really bad before I kind of came back and went back to school and did all that. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, I left in 96. Um, I was down in Florida just 
doing whatever and getting messed up until 2003 was when I finally moved up to Tennessee and got clean the first time. And I went to college, went back to college. So I got a master's degree and became a school teacher for a while. But yeah, that was it was many years later, actually. Oh, okay, okay. So like you weren't even doing wrestling or anything? What were you doing, you know, career-wise? Was it... Was it... I was doing some wrestling, um, doing a lot of things I shouldn't have been doing. Sure. But actually for a while, you know, one of the first companies I worked for down in Florida before the WWF was the Sunshine Wrestling Federation. And by the time I left WWF, they had changed their name to Florida Championship Wrestling. Now, I think they eventually sold that name to Vince, and yeah. he had it as a, as a, uh, as a, a yeah. mental uh, territory. But before that, these guys, they they had a building. They had a warehouse. We had a school. Um, but I was just hanging on by a thread, man, trying to sure. keep it together because I was still messed up, getting drunk and doing drugs. And they ended up firing me. So, and I remember when they fired me, it was getting close to 2001 because I remember not too long after they fired me was when 9-11 hit. Sure. And then I just kind of floated around, man, for a couple more years and then ended up, my family moved me up to Tennessee to put me in rehab and. And then I went back to school. But, yeah, I was just kind of floating around in Florida for a few years, not doing anything good, maybe a little bit of wrestling here and there. I had a wrestling ring for a while, but I just couldn't keep up with it because I couldn't keep it together back then. And it's an awesome story, dude, that you were able to do that because, you know, we, we all know, you know, some of the tragedies in wrestling, guys, just not being able to pull it back. And I think it's a testament um, to your, I guess, your will. People people don't understand the power of that word, will, you know. Um, to, to Well, you, you call it will. I'll tell you what, I always tell people, you know, I work in this this field now. I work with people that are having, you know, addiction issues. And I always tell people, you know, nobody's going to change until it gets painful enough. And uh, for me, I ended up, it, it took two rehabs, and I actually got arrested before the second one, and that's when it got painful enough. So that was when I was ready to change. Um, but it's it's a difficult thing, man. You get sure. wrapped up in that, and it eats your life. But it's funny because I've talked to people, you know, people talk to me about, oh, man, you just, I literally missed the um, attitude era by, like, months yeah you know yeah it's the stone cold era by like uh, you know a year maybe and during that time though they quit drug testing and i just remember when salvio vega called me and he goes they're not drug testing anymore they said that it costs too much and i just remember thinking oh man this is going to be bad but if i had still been there during the attitude era i probably would have been one of the dead rest i got you yeah i got you yeah you know, I say, don't you regret not being there? I said, for a long time I did. I thought I would have made millions of dollars, but I probably would have been dead because I was one of the hardest partiers there was. And when they quit drug testing, man, that would have been bad. So, and, and that is when guys started dying, too. So, and that's one of the good things where hindsight can actually benefit you because you can look back on that now with a clear mind and a sober mind and say, hell, you know what? As much as I would have loved some of that money, at the end of the day, I wouldn't have been around to spend it. So it's better thing that I wasn't there, you know. Absolutely. 
Um, but let's, I guess, let's finish on a happy note because that is a happy note in the sense that you, you know, right. you, uh, you definitely have got yourself clean. You're looking very well. Um, people have seen pictures of you. You're looking, you're looking buff. Um, definitely, definitely in shape. Yeah, I got my life back in the gym. I tried to get back into better shape. So yeah. you know, gotta do something. It's kind of like a midlife crisis. I'm 51 years old now. I had to do something. Well, you look very good for 51, my friend, and, and, and living, living probably two or three lives. You know what I mean? So, um, it's it's been it's you know as i say it may have only been a you know a short run but i mean it's still a run that is uh is memorable for a lot of old school um fans like me i mean you're you're from the era that you know made me want to get into wrestling really um so regardless of 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 whether people say business was down or up or whatever it was you had a run in wwe that's yeah go ahead yeah sorry. it was still fantastic yeah, absolutely. So, like, when you you and now, obviously, you say you're working your 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 days now. You're working helping people. Um, you know, through their, I guess, pain and their and and you know, it is a mental health thing, and it's great that mental health, I guess, is now uh, out in the open for people to um to basically talk about and not really kind of hide behind any kind of a kayfabe, real life kayfabe. You know what I mean? Right. Um, because that, put it. It is, yeah, because it is a kayfabe for a lot of people, except in real life. Yeah. They just want to brush it under the rug and not talk about it. But, yeah, it's a big issue, and uh, we deal with that. I work now for what's called an adult recovery court, and they call it recovery court because it works both with substance abuse issues but also mental health issues. And uh, awesome. So I see it every day. Um, people that are expressing interest in changing their lives instead of going in and out of jail constantly or going to prison – you know, we give them an opportunity. We get under very strict supervision. We give them an opportunity uh, and the tools to get clean and change their lives, but they have to want it. Like we were saying before, you yeah. have to be ready to change. But yeah, um, it's a rewarding job, and it helps keep me clean because I see people every day that remind me of where I came from. Sure. Uh, yeah. So it's good in that respect as well. But I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Um, I I enjoy the job. Uh, and I do get to help people, so I do like that part of it as well. That's awesome, dude. So I guess you know, putting a putting a nice ribbon on this and 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 finishing up. How how do we look back, and how do you, most importantly, Mike Josie, look back on Duke the Dumpster Josie and your time there? I mean, I guess it's it can only be with fond memories, I guess. You know, for many years, I would say I looked back with regret and bitterness. Uh, and I see many wrestlers even today that are still bitter. But now I look back um, with great fondness. I love where I came from. I love where I am now. And I love the fact that today I'm getting to reconnect with the fans, with this whole social media thing. It's, it's crazy because I think it's been just over a year ago that I kind of came back from nowhere because yeah. I was staying out of the public eye. I didn't want to get on social media. I didn't want to talk to people about it. And then, you know, one day a promoter in Tennessee got me to go do a meet and greet. And then I started talking to people online and that turned into me telling stories and this new connection with old fans, new fans and getting to go do the conventions and the meet and greets and stuff like that. Uh, it's opened up this whole new world for Duke the Dumpster, and I'm having fun with it, man. I'm not trying to be rich and famous from it anymore. Yeah. 
I'm just enjoying it. Uh, it's fun to do. I'm the weekend warrior now as Duke the Dumpster. I have fun. Uh, and it's just a great time. So I do look back now with fondness on where I came from and what I've been through. And uh, I love the Duke the Dumpster years. And hopefully there'll be more now, uh, you know, just having fun with it. Well, I mean, for me, um, from my point of view, um, I guess thanks for some of the memories. Thanks for your contribution. I always say that to wrestlers. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter whether it was small, large, little. Um, it's, you know, you've made a contribution. You're still known from it. And uh, I especially want to thank you for uh, for taking the time and coming on my show and uh, and kind of speaking very open and openly and honestly. And it was um, hopefully, you know, it's, it's a nice little eye-opener to anybody that listens to this show. Um, that is kind of struggling, and you know themselves. So, uh, thank you for that. No problem. I appreciate all the kind words, and I really appreciate you inviting me to be on your show, man. It's been a blast. Absolutely, my friend. Absolutely, any any time, any time. Thank you. My all friend. right. I'll that. <laughs> uh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> and thank you very very much for tuning in once again to Dynamo's Dozen this week. That is all she wrote for this week. Next week, I have a really special interview with YouTube sensation and wrestling superstar Hannibal. Do not miss that. But for today, it is Dynamo over and out. Are you a fan of wrestling merch? Do you like to wear the latest WWE and UFC shirts? Well, if you're in Ireland, there's only one place to go for all of your wrestling and MMA needs. Wrestling Mania. That's right. Wrestling Mania. Located on the top floor of St. Stephen's Green Shopping Centre in the heart of Dublin's first city is the only place you need to go. Wrestling Mania has everything you need from t-shirts, hoodies, hats, wristbands, mugs, pendants, and everything in between. And if you're like me, a fan of wrestling history and memorabilia, then you never know what you may find. From action figures, huge back catalogs of books, magazines, DVDs, and all kinds of retro items. Shop for brands like WWE, Tap Out, UFC, Ring of Honor, AEW, and much, much more. And much more than that, Wrestling Mania is a family-run business and Ireland's oldest wrestling shop that has seen superstars such as Brett the Hitman Hart, Chris Jericho, Finn Balor, Becky Lynch, Dana White, and many, many more pass through its doors. So why not get down to Wrestling Mania today? You never, ever know what you may find. But get this, if you need a purchase coming up to the holiday season and can't make it to the store, don't worry, they've got you covered. WrestleMania will deliver directly to your doorstep. And if you can make it to the store, today, Wrestling Mania will give you 20% off all purchases over 50 euro. That's right, for listening to Dynamo's Dozen, you get 20% off all purchases over 50 euro. What do I have to do, you say? Well, let me tell you something, Daddy. All you need to do is join the mailing list. Leave your name at dynamosdozen at gmail.com. Send me an email with your name. 
Hashtag wrestling store, hashtag Dynamo's Dozen. That is it. And you get 20% off all purchases over 50 euro. For more information, once again, go to dynamosdozen at gmail.com to be on the mailing list or go to Wrestling Mania Facebook page on the latest news and arrivals. Get down to Wrestling Mania today.